Have you ever wished that you had a direct line to your pediatrician to ask all the questions that constantly crop up while parenting? We sure have. That's why we launched the Bites of Health podcast. Every morning, we'll answer a commonly asked pediatric question in five minutes or less. You can tune in while you're making your second cup of coffee or from the school drop-off line. So be sure to tune in to Bites of Health, streaming now. In the summer of 2016, the sheriff's office in Greenville County, South Carolina, received a panicked phone call. Children at an apartment complex said a group of people offered them money to come into the woods nearby. No one was harmed. The children are safe. So there's not an emergency, but of course the sheriff wants to get to the bottom of this. In taking down information for the report, they asked for a detailed description of these people. Did the children recognize any of them? No, they didn't recognize any of them. We don't know what they look like, because they were all dressed like clowns. A flurry of clown sightings followed. A woman in the same town saw a clown under a streetlight when she was walking home one night. The clown waved. She waved back. People began drawing connections between clown sightings in U.S. cities and cities all over the world. Hardly any of these sightings had actual crimes associated with them. In most of them, people just saw the clowns. Which begs the question, why were they assuming they were all evil? Of course we should say that it's completely wrong to dress up like a clown and try to get kids to come into the woods. But what if there's just a clown standing somewhere? Most of us would probably be scared, or at least creeped out, right? So has it always been this way? Have clowns always been upsetting? I'm Elise Parisian, and we will look at the history of evil clown imagery on this episode of Unspookable. What I think of when I hear the word clown, I usually think of a a person with crazy rainbow hairdo, um, a very bright shirt and pants with a red nose, and that does tricks and is very funny. When I hear the word clown, I think of Pennywise the Dancing Clown from It and scary clowns, but also on trends on, like, YouTube, people will put, like, makeup on their face and just, like, lipstick and put it, like, around their eyes and on their nose and on their face and to tell, like, stories. It's not, like, stories about clowns, but they'll be, like, um, stories where they felt stupid about themselves and they just go, well, who's the clown now at the end? What I think of when I hear the word clown is Pennywise. And it's not really scary to me. The only time it was scary to me was when the first movie, It, was coming out. And uh, everyone was just scared. And I had, like, I was so, I was scared at that time because, like, there one of my friends, they live, they moved to another school and a cl creepy clown came to their school. 
If you searched up clown sightings 2016, you would find newspaper articles, Wikipedia pages, and other lists of sightings that all took place around that summer and fall. You might also find that the descriptions of those clowns vary wildly. White face makeup, a red wig, a red nose, a mask, a jumpsuit, pom-poms, a pointy party hat. The list of ways that a clown can look or what they can wear goes on and on. But there are probably some features most people would agree on. Things that make a clown a clown. So where did those come from? Well, even before the word clown became popular, there are examples of jugglers, tricksters, jesters, and fools in many cultures that are the ancestors of the modern-day clown. There are written records of clown characters from around 2400 BC in Egypt. Of course, they weren't called clowns, but we define them that way because it seems their purpose was to entertain, to make people feel good and laugh. Egypt has some of the first written records of circus performers like jugglers and acrobats. Hieroglyphs, or stylized pictures that represent words and syllables, that show these entertainers don't show them dressed like we would think a clown would dress. But they likely served the same purpose in the courts of Egyptian royalty. In ancient Rome, circuses became a little bit more comparable to what we recognize today. There were four different kinds of clowns in ancient Rome. Sanio, a clown mime who did not wear a mask, but was often famous for their facial and body contortions. Scuda, this type of clown performed various antics and often was a person with a physical disability or other body traits that people considered different. It's worth mentioning that a lot of the history of clowns is wrapped up in treating people who were different as entertaining oddities instead of as full human beings. We'll talk a little more about that later in this episode. The last two types of Roman clowns are called Moriones and Stupidus. Recognize any similarity to words we might still use? That's right, for better or for worse, this is where the words moron and stupid come from. A stupidus clown was named for the Latin word for mimic fool. This clown often wore makeup, a pointy hat, and a multicolored outfit. They were known for jokes and riddles, especially making fun of things that may have been even a little dangerous to make fun of, like the rulers in power at any given time. The Moriones were often household clowns, like our concept of a jester at court. They didn't necessarily perform in public arenas, but entertained wealthy people in their homes. So ancient Rome is where we have some of the first concrete records of different types of clowns with specific roles in performance. That trend continued to influence Europeans even after the Roman Empire no longer existed. Italians made a type of performance known as Commedia dell'arte, or comedy of the profession, popular all over Europe especially between the 15 and 1700s. In Commedia, there are various archetypes, or stock characters such as the devious servant, the foolish old man, or the young lovers. One of Commedia's stock characters was Harlequin, a clever servant character who tried to foil the plans of his corrupt boss. He wore a checkered costume and a mask with an expression many of us would associate with the clown makeup today. He was often paired in scenes with another type of clown character, a bumbling one whose humor came from his perceived stupidity. A lot of the physical comedy, like falling or hitting, incorporated a wooden prop called a slapstick, 
which is why we often call that type of physical comedy that involves injury slapstick. The stock characters of Comedia spread all over Europe and were adapted into new characters specific to the culture of the area they were in. In England, a clown puppet show called Punch and Judy, featuring a slapstick clown and his wife, became immensely popular. Versions of Punch and Judy puppet shows continue today, as do performances using Comedia clowns and other characters. Do you think that ancient Egyptians or Romans or theater audiences in Europe in the 1600s felt like clowns were ever scary? For the most part, it doesn't seem like it. Clown characters in these shows could be silly, mean, rude, tricky, or clumsy, but even if a clown served as the bad guy in a story, it all often worked out in the end. Audiences got to clap for the show where the good guys frequently won, and then leave. Clowns were a form of entertainment confined to the stage. So when did they break away from the stage and start showing up on street corners? We'll continue our journey towards the first ideas of the scary clown right after this. I think people would be scared of clowns. I don't really know why they'd be scared of clowns, but the reason that me and my friends are afraid of clowns are stories that people have told that are, of course, not true, but they say that they're true, so it makes me think that they're true. I think someone would be scared of clowns because, like, they have such a creepy face and but like I'm I always scare people and I feel like I'm a clown because I always joke around with people and I always pop up behind them like my mom and I scare her and she yells at me because because I scare her and she yells at me and I get in trouble for acting like a clown. <laughs> I think some one would be scared of clowns because sometimes clowns do really scary tricks like juggle chainsaws or something like that when i think of clowns they are not nice they want to eat little georgie's arm off i would want to dress up like a clown for like something like i don't know like i don't know like to just scare someone like i would do it to my dad <laughs> I would, I would, I would just, I would just take like, like, you know, like those mini scissors, like you could get at Target. I'd be like, I'm snipping your hair. <laughs> or like, I'm shaving your beard with some scissors. <laughs> if you ask someone who is scared of clowns about some of the features that make them eerie, they might talk about a mask or a face full of makeup. Some qualities about the clown's face. The white makeup that a lot of us associate with clowns didn't become a big part of clowning until the late 1700s and early 1800s. An English actor named Joseph Grimaldi developed a Harlequin character from Comedia into his own clown, who he called Joey. He was the first famous clown performer to use a full face of white makeup, with red cheeks and eyebrows. He essentially invented the costume of many modern clowns. The white clown was later prominent in circus shows, where he would be foiled by a red clown, often a more slapstick performer, where the white clown was more of a sophisticated character. Red clowns later developed into the red nose, wig-wearing, large shoes versions that we might associate with some circuses, or even birthday parties. 
The famous red clown Tom Belling performed in the circus in Vienna around the 1870s, and many performers in traveling circuses in the 1900s based their clowns off of his ideas. So many people could argue that clowns have been mischievous, tricksters, maybe even small-time criminals in some of the roles that they've played. So even if they've been meant to entertain, have they ever really been good? If not, then what led us to start thinking of them as evil? It turns out that one of the first explanations of a dark clown was written by Charles Dickens around 1836. Dickens, who would later go on to write books like A Tale of Two Cities, which is considered a classic in Western culture, was a young author at the time, writing novels or stories in installments that were sold for a shilling each. In the Pickwick Papers, Dickens introduced a clown character that many people think is based on the actor Joseph Grimaldi that we talked about before, or perhaps his son. This character is at the height of his powers on stage, with flawless clown performances. But then, offstage, he is sick and mean. Around the same time Dickens was writing about this clown, a man named Jean-Gaspard Deborah was playing an archetypical clown called Pierrot, to much acclaim on stages in France. In 1836, Deborah was accused of hitting a boy with his walking stick so hard on the head that the boy died. He was found innocent of the crime, and still performed all over. Professor Andrew Stott at the University of Southern California has written a number of books and articles about comedy and clowns, including a biography on Joseph Grimaldi. Stott argues that the character in Dickens' stories and the widely publicized accusations against Devereux around the same time served as a blueprint for the type of clown character that was covering something up or had evil intentions. They could look like a perfect, funny performer by day, but at night, with no makeup or costume, they were not good people. This is the beginning of a popular phenomenon among those with cholerophobia, or fear of clowns, where the fear isn't necessarily about a clown on stage, but about seeing a clown out of its performance context, blurring the lines between the real and the pretend. Seeing a clown in the woods or on a street corner has become a popular trope in horror movies, and these stories in the mid-1800s might be some of the first examples where offstage, the actor who played the clown had sinister intentions. Eventually, in the 1900s, the idea of the sinister clown would get picked up outside of live performance, in more stories, films, and in one very popular example, comic books. On April 25, 1940, DC Comics published the first issue of a comic about a superhero called Batman. And who was his nemesis in that first issue? A character called the Joker, a borderline psychopath and criminal mastermind who had the white face and colorful clothes of a clown. Editors at DC Comics did not necessarily intend for the Joker to remain a prominent character, but he so captured people's imaginations that he's remained a feature of Batman comics and films for the last 80 years. Of course, there were also plenty of examples of clowns in the 1900s that people still liked. The Bozo Show, featuring the character Bozo the Clown, first aired on TV in the US in 1960. Pretty soon, there was a waiting list for tickets to the live taping of the show that was 10 years long. Bozo the Clown was the inspiration for the clown mascot of McDonald's, called Ronald. Bozo gave rise to the trend in the 70s and 80s of having clowns at birthday parties, 
and in situations where people needed to be cheered up, like at the hospital. So as of the mid to later 1900s, we have plenty of examples of both good and bad clowns, and lots of opinions about which is which. Some people might think that Bozo is just as eerie as the Joker, and the Joker is probably not the only modern-day bad clown that you've heard about, right? We'll hear about more scary clowns that are embedded into our consciousness, thanks to the imagery of popular culture, right after this. The only clowns that I can think of are any scary clown, like Pennywise and the other Pennywise. (laughs) That looks a little bit more friendlier. I have seen clowns on TV um at six flags um what comes to mind when i think i think some famous clowns are killer clowns from outer space and pennywise um pennywise um lives in a sewer and has a bun and then it's like it's your normal clown just evil It's an evil clown that can turn things into monsters. And killer clowns from outer space can... I've seen them, like... They're, like... They're basically the exact same as Pennywise, just they're from outer space. And they can turn... I think I've seen one turn one... uh, Turn a person into, like, a cotton candy... A person covered in cotton candy. If you had asked people in the early 1800s, it probably would have been hard for them to imagine that just over 200 years later, so many people would profess a deep fear or even hatred of clowns. But the Facebook group I Hate Clowns has something like 500,000 members. And in 2008, a study in England of people between the ages of 4 and 16 concluded that hardly any of them found clowns funny, or even interesting. Most of them disliked clowns, or were afraid of them. Could this possibly be, because as of now, where we are in the 21st century, we have so many more popular images in TV or movies that give us examples of the evil clown? It could very well be. It was estimated that a full one-eighth of the population of London had seen Joseph Grimaldi perform live. But what about today? For many of us, we're not able to see live performance regularly. Something like a circus or even a birthday party with a friendly, funny clown may be more of a rarity these days. But there sure are enough examples of scary clowns that we have access to. One of the most famous clowns in recent popular culture appeared on the scene in 1986. That was when horror author Stephen King first published his novel, It about a pan-dimensional monster who was able to feed on children by luring them to him as Pennywise, the dancing clown. Pennywise has white makeup with red accents, a loose, ruffled clown suit with pom-poms, and bright red hair. He resembles a regular clown up until the last moment, when children realize that he is a supernatural monster. Two movies based on the book have recently come out, It in 2017, and It Chapter 2 in 2019, reviving the image in popular culture to the point that most people, perhaps at least in the U.S., know what this clown looks like. 
And remember those clown sightings in 2016 that we talked about? Well, they definitely were not the first in our modern era. There was a clown panic in 1981 that began in Brookline, Massachusetts, when a group of children said clowns tried to lure them into a van. Sightings then occurred across the Midwest and Northeast. Clown panic popped up in 1985 in Phoenix, Arizona, 1991 in West Orange, New Jersey, and 2008 in Chicago, Illinois. In all of these cases, the reports didn't lead to any concrete answers, and no one was actually harmed. Again, it's important to say that it's completely unacceptable for anyone, dressed like a clown or not, to try to get children they don't know to come with them. And if you ever were to see something like this, or be worried about someone's presence, it's good to tell an adult you trust about it. But how do we hold these two things in our minds at once? The idea that a clown could feel scary or threatening enough outside of a performance that we'd want to report it to the police, but at the same time, knowing that there are almost no reports that have been verified where someone was hurt. Psychologists who have done studies on creepiness, like Frank McAndrew did in 2016, connect our repulsion to clowns to ambiguity. When something is ambiguous, it's open to interpretation. It could have more than one meaning. The human brain operates on a lot of the same principles as other animal brains do. We might think we're super evolved, but we still have that fight, flight, or freeze instinct hardwired into our bodies, like many animals do. So let's say you see a zombie coming towards you, saying, BRAINS! There's no ambiguity there, right? Your brain would say danger and trigger a lot of chemical responses like adrenaline that would help your body run away quickly. But what about when you see a smiling clown walking towards you? He's not necessarily doing anything wrong or scary, and yet you don't really know what his intentions are. That type of ambiguity activates that creeped out feeling in many of us. In the study, Dr. McAndrew reported that most people, when given a list of professions to rank for creepiness, almost everyone put clowns at the top of the list. This brings us back to the origins of clowning and circuses. There are far too many examples of people being hired as clowns simply because they have a physical or mental difference. The history of entertainment, or live performance before we had TV or movies, is full of producers and audiences using those differences as the entertainment themselves, essentially laughing at someone because they aren't normal. But why do we have such a narrow definition of normal? This is another thing that psychologists have pointed out about ambiguity and feeling creeped out or scared. If we see someone who is different from us, or who doesn't follow what we think of as normal social cues, maybe they stare longer than you'd like, or talk differently, or have facial expressions or gestures that we just don't understand. We don't know whether they are a threat or not. Odds are, they are completely harmless. But our brains are still wired to question who this person is in our society, and if they're okay. Like with clowns, ambiguity with other people we can't read can feel threatening. So, while you don't have to seek out clowns in your daily life, or anyone that gives you the creeps, perhaps you can consider why they make you feel that way. And if it's in a safe environment, allow yourself to think about the similarities between you and people you might see as different. Yeah, there may even be similarities between you and a birthday party clown, if you get to know them. Thanks for listening to Unspookable. 
I'm your host, Elise Parisian. This episode was written by Eleanor Riley Condit, produced and edited by Nate Dufort. Our theme song and additional music composed by Jesse Case. Our logo was created by Natalie Kewen, with episode artwork by Sarah Stitches. Special thanks this week to our guests Blythe, Al, and Olivia. If you enjoy the show, make sure to tell your friends. You can leave us a rating and review in your podcast player of choice, or share an episode on social media. Speaking of social media, you can find Unspookable on Twitter and Instagram. Follow us for a peek behind the scenes and for updates on the show. Unspookable is part of the Soundsington Audio Network, committed to making quality programming for young audiences and the young at heart. For more information on our shows and the people behind them, go to www.soundsingtonmedia.com.